Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. Today, we're back on the more intense clinical train, and I have got a returning guest for you. Alexis Topchin is a critical care physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. In June of 2019, the American Heart Association put out its first pediatric-specific post-cardiac arrest care scientific statement, and Dr. Topchin was the lead author on that. This is the first time, at least from the AHA, that pediatrics have gotten their own separate scientific statement rather than being a special consideration within a primarily adult guideline. And it contains some really fantastic information about the ways in which pediatric and adult post-cardiac arrest care is the same and places where it's different. I think the guideline is really well done, and even though it is long, it contains some pieces for nearly each and every one of us, whether you are the primary bedside provider or whether you are trying to come up with bundled care or checklists for QI in a system, or whether you are looking to do research on this. As always, Dr. Topchin is a fantastic guest. There's so much in this guideline that we didn't get to touch on. We gave some of the high points and the places to really focus your attention on. If you've got additional questions that you don't think we answered, please let me know and I will have her back on. Alexis Topchin. I am a pediatric intensivist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on faculty at the University of Pennsylvania in the medical school. And I spend my time focusing on pediatric post-cardiac arrest care. So thanks for inviting me to come and speak again today. Yeah. And this is, Alexis has actually agreed to come talk to us a second time. The first one was a great discussion on an additional similar topic to what we're going to talk about today, uh, which is pediatric post-cardiac arrest care. And the statement, the scientific statement that came out from the American Heart Association in uh, the summer of 2019. So Alexis, I'm wondering if you can give us a, a background on, on where the statement came from or why it was important. And is this the first similar style statement that's come from the American Heart Association? So the AHA, which I'll refer to the American Heart Association, as going forward, has really focused on writing scientific statements in general when there is a good amount of information to sort of consolidate and then provide that to the community. In about 2008, 2009, there was a post-cardiac arrest care statement that came out by ILCOR, the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. And that statement really focused on the pathophysiology and management of the post-cardiac arrest syndrome of adults. And at the time, pediatrics was a small section of special circumstances, a little bit on drowning, a little bit of ECMO, but we really didn't have enough in the field to craft a statement focusing on the care of children after cardiac arrest. There was a lovely section in that statement on gaps. And I recall reading that section when I was a junior faculty member and said, wow, this is sort of the opportunity to fill in those gaps. And I used that as a template for the early part of my career with the hope someday we would not be the special circumstance, but that we would have our own statement. And here we are 10 years later. Yeah, I'm very excited about this coming at it from uh, the pediatric side as well. It's nice to get our own statement and not just have to look at what the adults are doing and then try to copy it for better or for worse. Well, I think there are things that are very similar between adults and children in cardiac arrest, but there are things that are really distinctly different. We have patients that rest much more from asphyxia than adults. We have far less VF. We don't have coronary artery disease as a primary problem. We also have a patient that's developing at the time when they have their arrest. And so the recovery 
trajectory is going to be very, very different. And even within pediatrics, that's going to be variable based on whether you're two or 16 uh, when you have a cardiac arrest. And then I think it's really important just to highlight that there's an impact on the caregivers in a different way as well. So there are very many things that are different while some things are inherently the same. Yeah, this statement is massive and covers a lot of things and we're not going to be able to get to all of them in this discussion today. So I'm wondering if maybe can you start out by if somebody's coming to this statement to begin with, how do they go about reading this? And are there any particular figures or tables you think are great places to start? Yeah. So I think the statement is 40 pages long. And we recognize that when we were drafting this, most people would not you know, commit an hour to sitting down and reading in detail. But I think for the end user, there are some really valuable pullouts in the statement. I think early on, figure one highlights the phases of the post-cardiac arrest syndrome. And that was from that original statement by Bob Newmar in 2008. But highlighting that there's the immediate time frame right after arrest and going through through rehab. And so that figure is, is really useful in terms of trying to bucket what you're doing each time. The second, I think, really important thing is figure two. And, and with that, we really wanted to highlight the phases of cardiac arrest starting as early as prior to the event and then all the way through the post-cardiac arrest syndrome. So really focusing on the continuum of the cardiac arrest through post-arrest care. And then we divvied that up into buckets. So mechanism of injury, clinical symptoms, how you're going to monitor the patient, the treatment interventions that you may have, and then some prognostic factors. And that really varies based on stage. And so that figure, I think, highlights really nicely for even a provider what they need to think about or worry about at each of those time points. Yeah, and I really loved this table as well because it helped me frame what the rest of the statement is trying to get at, especially for my ER-style brain. It helped me a little bit to try to figure out how the heck am I going to ask you questions about this thing? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, One of the things that I was interested in, and it has a definition section right up front, and, and just about every paper has that, but I was wondering about specifically uh, identifying what ROSC stood for, and, and was there disagreement on whether it's supposed to be spontaneous or sustained circulation, and does it matter for the paper? Well, I think the reason that we put in this terminology section and for the two things we'll talk about is that terminology changes over time. And when you write these statements, you're looking back at data that goes back, you know, 20 years. So one of the things that's changed dramatically in our field is that there was once upon a time where eCPR or ECMO was not as prevalent. And so we first of all look at return of spontaneous circulation, which is what we used to call it. Now using the term return of sustained circulation also incorporates ROSC. But what it really is focused on is that when we place patients on ECMO during CPR, so they go undergo eCPR, we say that they have return of circulation. And so the other term we hear is ROC, R-O-C. And return of spontaneous circulation is not the same as ROC because ECMO is supporting you during that time. Okay, that makes sense to me. That We actually had talked about this previously, but I'm wondering if you can review what is the difference between the use of the term targeted temperature management and therapeutic hypothermia? Are they not the same thing? Um, so once again, targeted temperature management is a newer term. It encompasses therapeutic hypothermia. Earlier research had really looked at comparing therapeutic hypothermia, usually 32 to 34 in the most recent era, although back in the 70s, it was even lower than that, to standard of care. And I think what the literature has borne out is that everybody needs some type of targeted temperature management. The question is, what is your target? So you could target your temperature management to 32 to 34. 
or you can target your temperature management to a different range. In this case, we um, focused on 36 to 37.5, which is previously known as controlled normothermia. But I think what it really highlights is the active prevention of fever or the active management of temperature, as opposed to I'm only treating to a certain goal for certain patients and I'm going to stand by more passively and watch. And that's why TTM is the terminology that is now being used. Yeah. And that's something that I think I didn't realize before I started talking with you initially was that they're not the same thing and it, TTM encompasses therapeutic hypothermia as well as you know other temperature management strategies. I think it also really gives you the provider, whether you're in an emergency room or an ICU, as if you're not doing therapeutic hypothermia, people may say, we're not doing anything. But everyone should have TTM, which means that you may even in the ER setting say, post-arrest, TTM to 36 means everyone's actively trying to get you to a goal, as opposed to saying, we're not going to worry about it because we're not doing hypothermia. Yeah. And we screwed up from both directions, you know, not paying attention to not letting them get super cold during our resuscitation and then also not letting them have fever. That's often where I think about it from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Would you be able to talk a little bit about the mechanisms of injury that occur post-cardiac arrest and maybe how they fit into the rest of the statement? Sure. So the original adult study did a really nice job defining the post-cardiac arrest syndrome. We think of four key components of PCAS. There is the brain injury that occurs after a cardiac arrest. There is myocardial dysfunction. There is a systemic ischemic reperfusion response. And then there is the sort of sustained persistent precipitating pathophysiology. I won't focus on persistent precipitating pathophysiology, which is a bit of a tongue twister, but I think it's important to recognize that just because you die of something doesn't mean that that something is necessarily gone after you get return of spontaneous or return of sustained circulation. So if you were septic before, you're still going to have sepsis after. If you had asthma before, status asthmaticus that led to your arrest, you're probably still going to have that after. And oftentimes you may not know what that persistent precipitating pathophysiology is when you get that patient, especially from an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So I think it also really highlights trying to figure out what made this happen in the first place. So that's, I think, one of the key four components um, and is different for every single patient. Right, right. The pathophysiology of post-cardiac brain injury, post-cardiac arrest brain injury, is really focusing on a period where the brain was deprived of adequate oxygen and adequate blood flow. And during that time, the brain cells undergo a complex interplay of excitotoxicity, and then they get reperfused. And there can be both cellular necrosis and apoptosis that can occur in the days to weeks after. And one of the things that we'll talk more about is the focus of PCAS is trying to minimize that secondary injury um, in those days to weeks after, after reperfusion. We also know that for myocardial dysfunction, and there's some um, nice studies out there, especially in adults and in some animal literature, that when the heart is deprived of adequate blood flow, it becomes stunned. And we oftentimes can see the beginning of post-arrest myocardial dysfunction in the hours following arrest, and that peaks somewhere in the 24 hours after arrest, maybe a little longer. But many patients will actually have myocardial recovery, whereas they may not have the same in the brain, which is less tolerant. Right. And then finally, the third bucket is the systemic ischemic perfusion response, which, you know, I always think is feels a little gray, but it's not all that dissimilar from a sepsis-like response. So you'll see things like coagulopathy, you'll see things like adrenal types of adrenal insufficiency, hyperglycemia. And those sort of responses are what you'll see vasoplegia, what you'll see in patients very similar to the sepsis response. So those are sort of the four buckets. And I think it's important to understand those. I think, once again, that table two we were talking about, 
breaks things into those buckets because you can then think about what to expect clinically and then how do you want to monitor and treat based on those four buckets. That actually leads right into a discussion of a different table that I wanted to ask about. And your group put out a really nice checklist that feels to me very similar to the way we're approaching sepsis. And this is table three in the paper where it gives a list of interventions and things that need to go into a bundled approach to treating these patients. So I think that's 100% correct. It's really hard with these patients. They're usually incredibly complicated, incredibly sick, multiple care providers at the bedside. No one's reaching for guidelines at that point in time to to read these 40-page documents. What ILCOR did in 2015 and what we thought to do was that we needed to provide people with a checklist because while this may not encompass everything you need to do, it's a great starting point to implement your post-arrest care. You can take this and adapt it. You could just print it out, but it really highlights the things that care providers need to focus on. They're supported by research that's out there and some consensus opinion. So I think we divvied this up into the big categories. So focusing on oxygenation and ventilation, um, hemodynamic monitoring, targeted temperature management, neuromonitoring, glucose control, sedation, and then importantly, prognosis. And while I wouldn't say that this is the end-all, be-all and all-encompassing, it gives a really nice high-level checklist for providers to use and then do a deeper dive if that's you know appropriate for their patient. Yeah, and I really like it as a way to frame either when you're trying to develop protocols or approaches for your institution and also for each individual patient, the things to think about. So uh, this is definitely one of those things that's getting printed out and stuck up on my wall. And we've used this locally in our institution to actually, as a backbone for our post-arrest pathway that we utilize, we use it as a component of the order set. And we'll be using this to do some implementation work going forward to trying to get this care to the patient in real time. Yeah. Moving on a little bit into the paper, the, the next table, table four, is a really nice summary of factors that affect outcomes. And I'm wondering if maybe you could talk about the way that table is structured and if there was anything in particular that you thought was interesting or surprising from those prognostic factors. So I think when we we sat down to look at post-arrest care, we realized that people want to talk about prognostication, and that's a very large nut to crack. By no means was this statement help designed to help the provider definitively prognosticate. But there are definitely components in the pre-arrest and post-arrest phases that are associated with outcomes. And we thought that it was important to just highlight in the previous literature what was associated with outcomes so that the reader could really go and look and say, these are things that in the past have been associated um, and things to actually consider. It's really complicated, I think, this process because what may be associated with poor outcome and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest may be the opposite and in-hospital cardiac arrest. And what we look at for survival to hospital discharge may not have the same impact on longer-term outcomes. So this was really designed as a summary of a lot of the literature that was out there so that the clinician could look at these things and incorporate them into their thought process. I think the most important thing to say about this table is that no one should look at it and say, if you have X, that means you're going to do poorly. But it really is to help people incorporate multiple factors into their thought process as they're thinking about how severely ill their patient may be after they get return of sustained circulation and how they may want to approach their care going forward. That's such a good way to put that. I really like that it's well-referenced and it gives the articles that speak to each possible factor, but it is not yet you know, some sort of predictive algorithm where you can plug in what your particular patient has and then determine their likely outcome. Yeah, and I think a lot of us think that uh, neuroprognostication should not be happening early after return of spontaneous circulation or return of circulation on ECMO, that there are probably a number of days the opportunity to treat before you as a collaborative team are going to start prognosticating definitively on outcomes. Yeah. 
Before I get into the end where you talk about gaps in the research and sort of a, a call to arms for what to do next, I forgot to ask earlier about you and I were discussing why highlighting the phases of care might be important. And specifically that the, the care does not stop when the arrest stops or even when they leave the ICU. Um, and I wanted to have you specifically highlight that this article encompasses the rehab or the long-term care components. Yeah, so I think early on, many, many years ago, and still today, you get a patient's pulse back and people feel victorious, like we've gotten them back, the resuscitation is over. And in some ways, it is a victorious moment. But you know that now that we're beginning this next phase of the resuscitation with post-cardiac arrest care, I think that we now know that the resuscitation doesn't end when the patient leaves the ICU or when they get discharged from the hospital. So with this statement, we thought that it was important to focus on that a little bit. Many of our patients will leave, um, some with significant neurologic and functional disabilities. Some will leave and look completely fine, but when they go back to school, they may have some memory difficulties. They may have some components of their illness where they can't breathe as fast or run as well. And so the focus we wanted to really highlight here was that the resuscitation actually doesn't leave after you leave the hospital, but there may be ongoing needs and care for many of these patients. And while we don't know when the best time is to assess patients, we do know that it's important going forward to look at these children in the you know months to years following their arrest and their families to figure out how they're doing, how are they developing after their injury. So so if you were two when you had your arrest and not really speaking, that's very, very different than the you know, child that was 14 and was doing algebra. Right. Right, right. It's important, I think, to think that forward. I think there is a, a hope for the future of ongoing cardiac arrest follow-up clinics, you know, ongoing PTOT speech, psychology involvement, neurology involvement, but really a multidisciplinary, multifaceted support for these children and their families in the time after leaving the hospital. Yeah, and I think that's really important. And it's not something I personally think of very often because it's it's not common that I'm working to get these patients towards discharge, but the need to think about that starts really, really early on. Well, and I think what's interesting is that cardiac arrest is this oddly this ICU problem, right? right? But many of our patients will leave the ICU and go to a floor. And so the home that we think of as owning this disease in the PICU or the cardiac intensive care unit is not the home that they're discharged from. And so the onus is upon us to think about where will these children go? They'll go from the PICU to someplace else, and then we have to pick them up again. And so this continuum of care is really important because I think many of us don't think about that. That, but that's where I think we need to go as a field. The last table I wanted to bring up was a really nice summary of some of the literature gaps that y'all found. And I'm sure there were more that didn't even make it into this table. And I'm wondering, you used the word call to arms earlier when we were in our pre-discussion. And, and that's what this seems like, is where are the gaps that need pediatric-specific data and which ones might you tackle next or which ones should we highlight for the listeners? So I think when you look at the author list for this manuscript, there are probably about 15 to 17 of us. I can tell you that this list was about 10 times longer when we started. The gaps are huge. And the data we have is mostly retrospective, observational. It's confounded. And there is a need to sort of prospectively look forward with multi-center data. Um, we are a small field that needs more people to dive in and to ask and answer these questions. So when we consolidated those gaps into this list, our goal was really to try and throw out some key questions to stimulate thought and research, to create a roadmap like I got, or I felt like I got when I was in my early career, with the hope that this would speak to people to sort of ask questions, to figure out, you know, do cardiac arrest centers improve outcomes? 
outcome. So when do you transfer from a small institution to a larger institution? How do we prognosticate? I think that is a huge question that we struggle with and have not made a tremendous uh, amount of headway with. Um, And then how do we care for these patients effectively? I think the one question that I always struggle with, and I think many of us do, is not all of these patients are the same. Some patients come in with mild brain injury. Some come in with severe brain injury. How do you identify who they are? And then how do you personalize or target their treatment for that patient? And when you look through the targets and therapies of GAPS, many of these are questions that almost take a one-size-fits-all. But what we're really asking is how do you figure out how to utilize these to help a specific patient in the moment? So it's a broad list, but I think these are all feasibly answered questions. We're just looking for people to to dive in and partner to help figure them out. Yeah. So what that's going to mean for everybody that's listening is we need you to read all 40 plus pages of the statement <laughs> uh, and then get on it. And I will tell you that, that uh, after reading the 40 plus pages, you could reach out to any one of the authors on this list who would be more than happy to collaborate on a research end to get things going to help tackle some of these questions. It's a very committed group of people that are committed to these patients and moving the field forward. And I know I would be happy to help um, anyone you know, tackle this from a research standpoint. And I, I can absolutely attest to that willingness to collaborate. Alexis and I have actually never met in person. And the, the first time we worked together, I cold emailed her as a young podcaster and said, I really like this article. Would you be willing to interview with me about it? And she jumped right in. So I don't know that she realized that she was now stuck with me forever uh, for every major <laughs> thing she publishes. But but I, w- I was really impressed by just how the answer was immediately like, yes, absolutely. We need to disseminate this knowledge more. Well, I think knowledge dissemination and implementation are super important. You know, we know that that these statements sit on the internet. You have to go looking for them to find them. I will tell you that all of these AHA statements can be found for free. You don't need to PubMed them. You can find them by just Googling them and they can get pulled down. But I think things like this podcast give us access to a far wider audience for people that are going to be not necessarily reading statements, but at the bedside caring for patients, which is why this is so critically important. Anything else that we didn't touch on today that you think the listeners really need to know before we send them off into the world? I'd like to just highlight that there is a special consideration section of this document. We have expanded that a little bit. I think we are in an era where patients with congenital heart disease, arrhythmogenic cardiac arrest, and things like drowning are special circumstances. There's a large congenital heart disease arrest management statement that was published a couple of years ago by Brad Marino um, in a very large group. But there are some more specifics for populations that are now our spe- uh, special considerations, as opposed to when we were the special considerations for the adult statement. And people should take a look at those. Yeah, I think that shows amazing growth in, in our field, just in pediatrics in general. And I, I'm really excited to be part of it. Unfortunately, that is where I'm going to have to end it. Dr. Topgen always has such amazing clinical pearls, and I really enjoyed listening to her talk. There's so much in this interview. Take a look at the guideline. There's a lot of stuff in there for anyone who takes care of emergently or critically ill children, and hopefully it helps to refocus your thought process on what you need to do once you have gotten return of circulation in a child. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of my podcasts at www.littlebigmed.com. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. And please, if you have a second, head on over wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave a review. It really does help other people find the show. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for listening today.